Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Now I understand it to be a huge part of my drive. Like you said, right? Like, okay, well, if I accomplish this, if I excel at this level, then I will prove to myself and prove to the world that (laughs) I am in fact enough. So after years of therapy, I don't know if I can precisely answer your question when it began. And maybe it does go back to childhood feeling like academically I wasn't enough. I always felt like I wasn't tall enough. (laughs) I wasn't smart enough. And so I wasn't athletic enough. And so I guess perhaps proving my value in other ways came something that I was to some extent relentless about. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Kimmy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, why I said yes to you as a guest. And, you know, I was just telling you before we had recorded here that it's always based on personal curiosity. And I just, you know, from reading your bio and kind of the way that your publicist had positioned you, I thought, yeah, this is a woman who sounds a lot like me in terms of the way she likes to tell stories. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, this is a no brainer. This is somebody I want to talk to. But, uh, before we get into all that, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping the choices that you made with your own life and career? Well, my mom, when she married my dad and had, um, my sister and me didn't have a college degree. So when she was raising us, she went back to school and got a master's in clinical social work. And she was a social worker while we were growing up. Um, and she was actually, you know, during a stretch working in women's shelters, um, working with women, doing self-esteem workshops for women who had been abused and were rebuilding their lives. So looking back, pretty fascinating, important modeling as a young girl. And my father was a serial entrepreneur and creative. He's 82, but I, I think he'd be great on this podcast. <laughs> So I had a father who was an entrepreneur and a mother who was a social worker. Mm-hmm. What did they teach you about making your way in the world? Oh, I think um, I 
I, my parents were valued kindness, right? To, to some extent, um, above performance or excellence, which is interesting because I think, you know, now in life as somebody who's really ambitious, I, I value all, you know, all of those things, but definitely, um, kindness and sort of being polite was a big deal in our house. Um, but when it came to work ethic, I think it was demonstrated in the way they lived their life. So that was a big deal in our house, was was working hard and doing your best. And I didn't have a traditional brain, um, meaning I had a learning disability now called learning difference. Um, and so I think I saw, in particular, my dad um, developing strengths that compensated for um, the pieces of him that, that you know, were different or perceived as weak. And, and my creative life and professional life sort of played out in the same way. Mm -hmm. Did they encourage any particular career paths based on their own experience? Because, you know, I mean, as the joke goes for Indian people, it's doctor, lawyer, engineer, if you want a good life, that's pretty much it. Like our, our future is limited to three options by the time we're 15. Um, you know, I knew oddly, because I feel like most people don't decide what they want to do and actually end up having that be their career path. But by the time I was 14, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to tell stories about real people. I couldn't articulate it that way, but I was writing for the school newspaper. I was obsessed with photography. Um, if, if I was asked to do a research paper, I would you know, convinced that I should do a presentation with photography and video to tell the, to tell the narrative. And I, and I think for the most, most part, they sort of stood back and let us do our thing. So I don't ever remember feeling like, you know, there's only one path to success, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to dive deeper into this idea of not having a, a typical brain as a fellow non-neurotypical person. Uh, I had a, a fourth grade teacher, and I just I wrote about an article about this recently, about the long and short term consequences of being undiagnosed with ADHD. And I had uh, Jesse Patel, the founder of Workflow here. And by the time he was 13, I think he said he had been kicked out of multiple schools and it was just kind of a bad kid. And his dad happened to be a physician and was like, I think you have ADD. Do you want to take something for it? And he goes from being the kid who's been kicked out of multiple schools to getting into Stanford and realizing that, wait a minute, I am smart. My brain just works differently. And when my fourth grade teacher and all of, of all the things I could have been failing, I was failing reading, which is really ironic considering what I've done for a living. Um, but you know, like when you figured this out, uh, what was the, the sort of response from your parents and, and more importantly, like, why is it that, you know, we leave so many people behind when it comes to this? Cause I feel like our school system fails people who are not neurotypical. It's so true. Like the notion that somehow all our brains work the same, right? We're all sitting in a class looking forward and everyone's brain works the same. It's like, when you think about it, it's ridiculous. So I was never diagnose and this is fascinating so i i have three kids and my middle daughter for good or for bad is a lot like me and um 
it was when we were di- trying to figure out her brain and how she learned. And they diagnosed her with a visual processing disorder. And they were explaining to me how to use a word window because the, you know, just seeing all the black and white on a page is jumbled and the word window highlights line by line. To this day, I cannot read a book. I can't, I can't do it. My brain can't decode it. I am constantly consuming audiobooks, never not immersed in a book. And when I saw the lines highlighted, I was like, oh my gosh, like I could have, I could have been able to read had it been presented to me in this way. And so I was never diagnosed until I diagnosed my daughter and realized that, um, you know, there would, there would have been, so all the modalities we taught her and I learned to teach her just completely lit up my brain, like, but, but not until I was in my forties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can relate, you know, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 28, I think, if I remember correctly. And I think it was not a coincidence that after I got diagnosed, I remember calling a friend. I was like, what would you say if I told you that I might have ADHD? He said, I wouldn't be surprised at all. He said, you know, when you come to visit, it's like a tornado has been through my house. I find stuff left behind for months. Uh, but, you know, like, and I, like I contrast that story with Jesse Patel and I'm just like, wow, I always wonder, I remember the reason I wrote that article is I was talking to one of my readers and we both kind of joked about the fact that, you know, can you imagine what we would have accomplished if somebody had actually figured this out sooner? I mean, I think, you know, it's so interesting because I've gone back. I didn't do well academically. I was mostly a C student at best, but I, I think I, compensated. I, I wanted to participate. I, I wanted to um, be contributing, be doing well, be doing interesting things, but I just couldn't pull it off academically at all. So I leaned into all these other things. I was starting clubs. I was, you know, doing photography with the school newspaper. And so I've had the same question that you had, like, okay, well, what if, what if I had figured it out? But I wonder if I had figured it out, if I wouldn't leaned into all of those aspects that developed for me, like creatively and as a leader. So it's interesting because I think sometimes our perceived, um, you know, setbacks foster other strengths within us. Yeah. Oh, without without a doubt. I mean, I think that somebody had asked me once, you know, like, why did you end up going down this path? I was like, you know, like a lot of people have this moment of disillusionment after they climbed the corporate ladder or whatever. I was like, that's not my story. Like I started this path because I didn't have any other alternative. Yeah. Like, you know, I had no other way to do this. Um, so one thing I think that really struck me was that you said you knew at 14 what you wanted to do. And, you know, we we're talking earlier about sort of career paths and, you know, the, the, the Indian parent narrative of, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And, I feel like in one way, our school system perpetuates this sort of, you know, you need to know what you want to do with your life narrative. And I always say, how the hell can you know what you want to do with your life when you've only lived a fraction of it? Yet you seem to be like one of those rare few who kind of knew this early. And my sister was like that. She knew, I think at age seven, she's like, I'm going to be a doctor. And she knew it. And I feel like so many people commit to paths they know nothing about only to wake up one day and realize they hate the life they've built for themselves. Well, it's, It's still fascinating to me that I, because I've grown so much as a person and I, I look back at that time in my life and, um, like, 
not to say I was pretty broken. I mean, I think most, you know, that's a tricky, tough age, right? You know, sort of early teen adulting. That's an understatement. That's like the (laughs) part of life that you hope to never revisit again. Nothing sucks more than being a teenager in my opinion. Nothing sucks more than being a teenager, but I don't look back on being a teenager and remember, you know, feeling very confident in myself, sure about my path ahead. But I did stumble upon this thing I love and going back to, um, you know, what we've talked about a few times now, this, this different unique brain is how it all played out is we, I was asked to do a, at the time the HIV and AIDS crisis was, you know, um, exploding and there was a lot of narrative around it. So I was asked to do a report in a, in one of my classes. So I went to my teacher and said, instead of doing a traditional research report, I want to go out and interview people. So I actually went out and interviewed people, um, living with HIV and AIDS. And I, it took the video, like showed the video and talked about it in front of my class. And I was so looking back. Um, felt so alive in that process. Like you said at the beginning, like I just realized my innate curiosity about human beings and understanding them. And now it makes even more sense, my innate curiosity about understanding human beings suffering and enduring and what that looks like. And so I, I literally think it was that specific project. Um, subconsciously, it was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, and yeah, so all these years later, still telling stories, and I've done it in lots of different ways. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You mentioned you have three parents and, or three kids, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and if you had to create a system that allowed for people to discover that when they were young, what would you change about the way that we educate people so that they would have the experiences you have? Because me getting here was largely accidental and that has its pros and cons. Like I, Robert Green once said to me, he's like, no experience in your life should be thought of as wasted. And there's definitely a grain of truth to that. I, I see now that all the things that I've done have led me to where I'm at. And yet there's this part of me that says, you know what? If somebody had figured this out sooner, you know, I wouldn't have spent 10 years of my life getting fired from every damn job I ever had. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to this idea of diversity, right? And I have never, I always felt lesser than, not enough in academic settings. Um, you know, still, even in my professional life, I would, you know, find myself being part of a team and everyone's like, oh, I went to Brown, I went to Stanford. It's like, well, barely made it through Boulder. Um, but this, now I know myself to be a, um, really intelligent person. And I, and I think this idea that there's lots of different ways to learn and there's lots of different ways to, to be, um, to contribute to the world with your mind and with your intelligence. So I think people learn through travel. People learn through food. People learn through intimate conversations. People learn through books. And there isn't only one path. So I think if there was an opportunity to see, where do you feel lit up? Where does your brain and your heart feel up? So let's dive into that as a process of learning would have been um, 
you know, in my case, I think I was trying to find those paths through photography, through interviewing. But like, what if that was an option for all of us to explore how we learn and have opportunities to learn and to grow and explore, you know, within those ways? So I don't, you know, I have not worked out in the two minutes I share that with you, how that would be feasible, but I think it would be pretty incredible. I'm in the middle of Matthew Perry's new biography and he's talking about fame. And it's funny because you hear this over and over and over from famous people. It's like fame doesn't heal the wounds that you think it will. And the only people who understand that are people who are famous and people who are not just can't comprehend that idea. They think that being famous will solve all their problems. Well, I mean, I think like I'm not, this is not unique to me, but my narrative of not enough started at a really young age. And I was for many years convinced that I would be enough if I, you know, my pursuits were always creative pursuit. Sorry, my pursuit. My pursuits were always creative pursuits, but that if I if I got into Sundance, then I would, then I would be enough, right? This would be incredible. Then I would have a film. And again, the, the fulfillment, it was elusive. It never came. Um, yeah. and that, um, that lesson takes time, but is in a bizarre sense, you know, comforting and freeing when you realize that truth. I can relate. Uh, I think in, in my head, it was always, oh, my parents won't think I'm just screwing around the internet when I get a book deal, when I do this. You know, it's like Wall Street Journal bestselling book that was self-published. Nope, didn't do it. Book deal with a publisher, didn't do it. Yeah, you know, the round of venture funding. Nope, I'm still insecure about this. So uh, it, it, it just blows my mind that I've been at this for 10 years and I still have questions about this. And I, I don't think I've resolved this yet for myself. Um, but that feeling of not enough, like, where did that come from for you? How did you begin to unwind the narrative and how do other people identify where it came from? And more importantly, uh, begin to unwind that narrative. Well, I mean, it's still, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty much, I would imagine a very shared human emotion, this notion of not enough, but I feel like I've been, um, particularly gifted or plagued with it. And the interesting thing about that is it has always, now I understand it to be a huge part of my drive. Like you said, right? Like, okay, well, if I accomplish this, if I excel at this level, then I will prove to myself and prove to the world that (laughs) I am in fact enough. So after years of therapy, I don't know if I can precisely answer your question when it began. And maybe it does go back to childhood feeling like, um, you know, academically, I wasn't enough. Um, I I always felt like I wasn't tall enough. (laughs) I wasn't smart enough. Um, And so I guess perhaps I wasn't athletic enough. Um, So proving my value in other ways came something that I was, to some extent, relentless about. I think that it's fascinating because you talked about how it's part of your drive. And I think we both have that in common. I, I, like, like, I always tell people, it's like, I don't care about growing an audience for the size of the audience. It's not about that. It's about one, just proving to myself that I can do it and having some sort of impact on the world and having the ability to shape and influence culture. Like it's all these other things, but you're right. There is a part of it that is absolutely 
driven by this need, the sense that I'm not enough in some way or another, not enough for my parents, not enough for some girl that I want to date, not enough for, for anybody. And I, like, I'm, you know, as I'm reading this Matthew Perry book, I keep thinking like, to myself, like, here's a guy who has spent his whole life feeling like he's not enough. And the dark side of it is it drove him to drugs and alcohol. But I think that achievement can be in its own kind of addiction. Uh, and, and I remember I, I felt this, I, I wrote an article about this at a friend who told me, he's like, I think you're addicted to achievement. And I never saw that as a bad thing. I mean, I come from the Indian culture. It's like ambition is not frowned upon. Um, but there's this darker side to it that I don't think we ever acknowledge. Uh, so where's the, this is, I, this is where I'm going with this. Like, how do you find that balance between fulfillment and ambition? Well, it's such a good question because I genuinely feel fulfilled by my work. Um, I, like you, I feel, like it's aligned with my intentions, right? I want to make a positive dent. I want to create meaningful um, work that that ignites people or inspires people to think differently about themselves, um, about each other. So when I lean into that piece of it versus, um, you know, well, if the podcast grew to this level or well, if, you know, the, the film had won this award, so it's, I don't know, maybe it's like small brain, big brain. Like when I'm not thinking in that, in that smaller way and I can actually let it sink in that this work matters and it's aligned with my values and what I want to contribute to the world. But to be honest, like I gotta, I have to work for that because I can live in the place of, well, if only I achieved or if it, or if my audience was this size, then it would be. So that, that's not a, not an easy cognitive process for me. I, I tend to, I think, vacillate in the wrong direction. You and I, you and I both, I mean, I, I, I can relate. Um, this is why I have to, I've basically stopped using social media. Like I, I had to put in all these mechanisms. My friends, like, you don't check the sales of your books or your rankings. I was like, no, because that's a recipe for anxiety and disappointment. Because it just yes. leads to endless comparison. It's like, oh, why is my friend Ryan Holiday selling a million books? I'm like, because he's a better writer, obviously, which he is. You know, like I'm not denying that. You know, to me, I've made my peace with the fact that I'm not going to be any of those people. Like it's, it's taken me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I will never be able to write in the way that many of my guests do. Um, they're better at certain things and most of them probably couldn't host this show. Yeah. And it's, you know, like, I've been very project based mm-hmm. in my, um, I obviously for a while worked with, you know, networks and media companies, but then I, I think I've, um, you know, f- found my rhythm and flow independently doing creative projects. But every time, and these are projects that take years and years and days and days and hours, show up, show up, show up. Every time when it's over, I wake, you know, wake up and immediately it's what's next what's next what am i versus you know as we said just sort of um letting it all sink in the process the contribution instead it's this relentless pursuit of what can i do next to 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 prove to myself <laughs> you know that you're enough the enoughness yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, speaking of work, you alluded to the fact that you were at Boulder. I don't know if you knew this. I actually lived in Boulder for two and a half years. So, uh, 
But what was the trajectory that led you down to doing all of this media work? So I was a journalism major at Boulder, always focused on visual. So, you know, photography um, and video. And it was the last, it was, I was about to graduate. Um, my professor had been one of the, I guess, earlier founding producers at CNN when CNN was brand new and based in Atlanta. Um, and I was sitting in her class and she came in and said, there is, um, a story breaking in Colorado. Um, they think it's a hostage situation, but the national media is, is flying out and CNN called and asked if I could, you know, bring some students to get there as soon as possible. So I hopped in the car with my professor and, and we went and arrived at Columbine High School, which was, you know, one of the obviously largest massacres and school shooting in the country, certainly at that time. And we were one of the first to arrive. So I found myself, you know, on the lawn with with families sitting there with them, you know, relaying information. And eventually the, you know, real journalists, quote unquote, came from all over the world. And um, they hired us as as interns. I don't think hired is the right word. I think we 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 stayed and they gave us somewhere to sleep and food. And you know, f- from there I stayed. And at the end they said, you know, if you want a desk assistant, you know, position in New York or DC, um, you know, we, we can try and, and help you get there. Cause I had been working really hard for weeks on end with them. And that was the beginning. Mm. Well, so as, as somebody who has had such a, uh, you know, front row seat to media, this is something that I wonder about in our sort of world in which dis- you know, misinformation spreads and has serious consequences. Uh, and we have this fragmented media landscape with multiple versions of the truth. What do you think is the responsibility of people who create media in the world that we live in today? Well, I feel like then um, there was so much more integrity in journalism because it wasn't there was a point in which I walked away from in particular working in news um because it was almost as if conflict and tension started to sell right there was this notion that if you create tension it was when pundits came in but before that it was um reporting in a responsible and fair Matter, as a, as a service to inform the the country and the world factually to stand witness to it right um and that became i think with 24 hour news and like social media it just has spun out of control and so talking about alignment with integrity and i i think if you're going to work exhausting hours to create content to put in the world you better be damn well sure you feel good about that content. And I think traditional media, when it went in the direction of more opinion and tension versus 
observation and facts um, was no longer aligned for me. Um, and I think that's the landscape we're looking at today, sadly. Uh, you know, I hope the pendulum swings in the other direction because it's really confusing as, you know, consumers of media about what's true and what's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I, as, as you were saying that, um, I couldn't help but think of the, the show, The Loudest Voice in the Room uh, on Amazon. I don't know if you've seen that. It's the show about how Fox News was built. Uh-huh. 
And there is this scene, Russell Crowe plays Roger Ailes, where he talks about creating media in such a way that people will never change the channel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a podcast, so naturally, like I think about that and I, I, I actually went and read all of Roger Ailes books. Like people are like, what's wrong with you? Like <laughs> he stands for everything that you're against. I was like, yes, but I need to I understand it. Yes, I need to understand. Yeah, it. no, I my attitude towards things like that has always been I will not write off the value of a message because I don't agree with the messenger uh, or because I don't like the messenger. And you know, as an example, recently I had uh, we did an entire series on cults and we had a Nexium member. And a few days ago, a Nexium member who actually had a positive Nexium experience emailed me and he was like, would you be willing to have me on the show? And I said, yeah, absolutely, because I do want to hear the other side of the story. Yeah. My side of the story that I've told has been the awful side. But here's a guy who had Tourette's cured and he said that his story wasn't given enough visibility. And he said, I know you're nuanced about your conversations and I'm thinking you'll be open-minded enough to hear the story. I was like, I'm absolutely open-minded enough. I don't necessarily think it would make Keith Raniere here on my eyes, but I want to hear what this guy's experience was. Yeah. Well, like it, 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 it informs you and it, and that deeper, richer and, you know, of, of all the perspectives. So you can be (laughs) more informed, um, you know, for your truth and, and, so, yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense to me. Well, I mean, I know from your background that you went from that to I, I don't know if there's something in between, but I know you went to go work for Oprah. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. I did. I mean, obviously, that's quite a contrast from like, you know, news to Oprah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, I often talk about this. Well, since we're talking about. Oprah, I'll call it an aha moment because she coined that phrase, right? Um, But this sort of light bulb moment where I went to work for Oprah, I was based on the West Coast, but I was flying back and forth to Chicago. We were developing story ideas. I was initially brought in on the story development team, which means like stare at a whiteboard and come up with ideas of what shows and guests and can be. And we're pitching ideas and one of the bosses says, which is sort of this, you know, I'm new, I'm new to the show and the culture. What is your intention in telling that story? And I was like, oh, oh my, I have never been asked that. I have never been asked that. And I had worked for the major networks, told stories, you know, for that were went out to millions of people on a daily basis and that that pause of well what is the intention what do you want people to feel what do you want people to and so that was like mind blowing for me um and you know n- now it seems so obvious but i was relatively mm-hmm. young and just that pause of thinking through the intention was like why is this the first time you know that I've been asked that or that I didn't come up with, you know, I didn't get that connection on my own. So, yeah, I mean, it was pretty incredible experience. Um, Obviously there was um, unlimited budgets, lots of, you know, big dreams that were executable with a lot of support, um, you know, big visions for, you know, crazy things that we pulled off and it, it was, it was fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I wanted to talk about that is I feel like so many people, particularly in the spaces that you and I play in, Oprah is kind of the gold standard by which they measure themselves by. 
uh, where it's like, I, I remember hearing a podcast host tell me they wanted to become the next Oprah. And you may have heard it. WBEZ in Chicago did this uh, podcast on the making of Oprah. And the thing that stood out to me most about the entire series was one thing that they said. They said that today's media landscape does not allow for another Oprah to be created. It's simply not possible in such a fragmented media landscape. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, that would make trying to become the next Oprah a stupid goal, which yeah. is already a stupid goal because you're, you know, you're not that person. Um, but the thing I, I guess I wonder is when we look at outliers, guy had, I wrote this other piece titled why outliers are actually lousy role models for most of us. Uh, because we don't see the sides of the story that we can't replicate. We only see the, the good things. And there's a lot of survivorship bias and a whole other host of cognitive biases in these stories. Um, which is, I think, one of the reasons to me, like what I'm trying to do is find relatable models of possibility. And that was the one thing, you know, I, I saw with Oprah and over, over and over again, because I've had some guests that have been on Oprah as well. And I thought to myself, like, some of these people are so far removed from where the average person is at that they're not able to, they're inspiring, but not relatable. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how do we use people like this as a role model without having unrealistic expectations and letting our ambition take us you know, down this dark hole of not feeling like we're enough? Because if you've got to be Oprah to feel like you're enough, well, I mean, that's going to be a lifetime of feeling like you're not enough. Yeah. I mean, ideally, we, you know, move closer to seeing our our own value as unique beings. And you're right. Like the notion of success being um, that you are someone else, um, you know, when you break it down, clearly doesn't make a lot of self, make a lot of sense. So, I mean, I think another way to think about it or approach it would be to figure out the pieces of that person. So maybe it's one aspect of that person. I really value how she can own her spirituality and talk about that in a way that's unfiltered and real. Or I really value the way that she uses media and content to illuminate um, issues or, you know, how, how she merged philanthropy and cause and story. So maybe versus saying, I want to be like this, like, getting really intentional and specific about your aspirations about that person. Well, what does that reflect in me that I value? I think that seems like a smarter path if if we're looking at, at you know, big role models in society is what mm -hmm. specifically, um, you know, and, and you know, how, how can you look at that as a is a bit of a guidepost or a North Star to say, I want to grow in that way because it's really appealing for me and really aligned for me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, I mean, the thing that I think strikes me most is one, Oprah herself, but even the guests on there. I mean, these people are at the top of their game in every way. And I mean, I'm guessing much like myself, you probably recognize patterns. I mean, I think pattern recognition is an you know, inevitable consequence of doing this kind of work. You have a thousand conversations with people from every walk of life. You start to notice patterns. What about you? Like, what were the patterns that you noticed that enable these people to do what they do at the level they do it? I mean, I think they all have teams around them. So I think the illusion that they're somehow superheroes. Superhuman. Yeah. And superhumans yeah. is um, categorically false. Um 
I think there are all, I keep using the word alignment. Um, it, who you see is not always aligned with, um, you know, there was many guests that are really well-known household names around the world who when the camera's on are very different than when the camera's off, right? So I think that um, alone, but I think they, they surround themselves with smart, hardworking people. Um, I think they all are um, relentless in their pursuits. They work incredibly hard at what they do in their craft. Um, so I think there's a, a huge amount of commitment and dedication um, and then surrounding themselves with smart, capable people who share in their vision of, of success and contribution. Going back to this team of enough, did you ever feel like you noticed that any of them are driven by a sense that they're not enough? Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, the amount of, um, you know, insecurities and humanness, right? The idea that somehow these people aren't human. But I, um, I, it was actually, I think, in an article that, that Oprah said, or I don't know, maybe she said it at like a team or company meeting. But this idea that she had interviewed people, you know, from kindergartners to presidents and almost everyone on that stage said the same thing after, which was, did I do okay? Or was that all right? You know, at, at the ending of the interview. And you know, I mean, from having guests on your podcast or how you feel when you're interviewed, <laughs> I always get the email after and I'm like, was that all right? Did I do? And it's just, it's freaking universal. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's amazing. It's fascinating to me that you talked about the idea that, you know, who we see when the cameras are rolling are not the people we see when they're not. And like, I've been on a reality TV show and I, you know, it's funny, Cal Newport was joking. She's like, so we didn't get authentic Srini. I was like, no, you got Srini who is mindful of the fact that he's a public figure. And if he yes. looks like an idiot in front of a million people, it's going to matter. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Yes, it's so, it's so true. So true. Yeah. Well, cause I, I think there's this idea that, you know, I had this conversation with Tim John and he titled the episode, We Don't Want 100% Authenticity. Um, with this author named Steve Goldstein here, who actually worked on the Oprah team for a while too. And he wrote this book. Uh, I don't remember the exact title. I remember the subtitle just about how the most powerful people from, uh, Washington to Hollywood to Wall Street get us to like them. And, one of the things that he talked about was this idea of authenticity and how it's so misunderstood it, because I realized it was like the audience doesn't give a damn about your problems. They want you to solve theirs. And you don't, I, this is another thing. I had a mentor once. This was right after a really bad breakup and I was just going out the deep end. And, you know, when you have a public presence and you're broadcasting your bullshit, that's not good for business. And I remember telling him, yeah, Greg, but I'm human too. And his response was, yes, Trini, you don't get to make that excuse. Yeah. Yeah. That was harsh, but you know what? He was right. Yeah. That's a powerful <laughs> statement. You don't get, I love that. You don't. Yeah. You don't get yeah. to make that excuse. When you're in the public eye, your personal life is basically not of, you know, any concern to the public. Yeah. And you have to basically separate the two no matter how screwed up you feel about something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it just makes me think, like, we don't see what's really going on behind the microphones, behind the cameras, or any of the things in these people's lives. 
So true. So true. What are the darker sides of these people that we don't see? The things that might surprise us? Hmm. The darker sides. Um, I mean, I think that like all of us, there is a diversity of personality and ways of being. And it was really illuminating to what you just said to see the truth of that, right? So there was, I'll talk about Forrest Whitaker for an example. I think I'm okay highlighting the positives. Um, I interviewed Forrest Whitaker a few times while I was working for Oprah. And Forrest Whitaker was the type of person who, while he was sitting down and we were adjusting the lighting and the audio and getting everything, genuinely cared and was curious about the people in the room. So you would find him, you know, chatting with the sound engineer about, do you have kids? Do you have engaging in such a real and kind and connected and meaningful way? Um, there were people who were horrendous. I mean, the entitlement, the, um, to, you know, when no one was looking, when the cameras are off. So I think that was just totally fascinating to see, especially because you got to see like the juxtaposition, the comparison. You're like, holy shit, this person was just such an asshole and cameras on. It was like, boom, game on, let's do this and smile and charm. So I got to literally be a fly on the wall. And at the time we were interviewing, you know, rock stars and astronauts and, you know, actors and athletes and all of these. And you, you just got to see their humanness, like for good or for bad. And that is super interesting. And I, you talked about social media and like perceptions there. I do think it's given me a pretty, like a filter of like, I truly understand that what you see is not reality. I -hmm. truly, truly understand that. Well, you know, I'm glad you, you, you brought up the word entitlement because there was, uh, something I wanted to, to go back to that you had mentioned at the earlier part of our conversation. And that was that your mother was a social worker. Yeah. And something that I think I've become aware of over the last probably two or three years is that the conversations that I have with people on this show are relevant to people who are in a position of privilege. Mm hmm. And often I feel like when we look at sort of self-improvement or any of these sort of spiritual efforts, they largely are catered towards an audience of privileged people. Uh, even though we don't want to admit that it makes us seem like assholes. Uh, but the truth is like, I mean, you know, from what you're telling me and, and based on my background, I, we grew up in relatively privileged circumstances. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So. With that in mind, what did your mother teach you about privilege and, you know, sort of your status in society? And what have you taught your kids about that? Um, I mean, I went back, uh, back to when you asked me about my childhood and what was important in our house. And I, I brought up kindness, which sounds kind of, hokey, right? Or I guess now it's it's not as undervalued. But I truly believe, not I truly believe, I know that I grew up with 
with parents who were just um, kind and respectful to people in the world. Um, You know, obviously we all have our moments, but I think this idea of, you know, how we act when no one's looking and, you know, how we how we treat people as we move through the world, especially when those people really don't have anything to offer us <laughs> for lack of a better word. But, you know, there's lots of people who are um, nice to people they want to or need to be nice to, but aren't generally nice to the waitress or the checkout person. And I think my parents really modeled um, those small acts on a daily and micro basis that that build up your character and who you are and um, and so I, I think for my kids, um, I have modeled that as well. I like, I like to believe that they are kind and respectful to almost everyone they encounter. So, I mean, you've gotten to do things that I think a lot of people dream about doing I and mean, getting to work with iconic creatives like Oprah getting to produce things that millions of people have seen, write books that hundreds of thousands of people have read. You know, going back to this whole theme of feeling like you're enough, how has your personal definition of what it means to be successful changed with time and with age? Um, I think living in a very authentic way. We didn't get into it with childhood, but a big part of my father's perpetual entrepreneurship was that he was undiagnosed bipolar, had bipolar disorder and was undiagnosed until he was 50. So I grew up with a very manic and a very depressive father. Um, and he hit it once he was diagnosed and then, um, it's hereditary. So I, um, have bipolar disorder and, and hit it until about three or four years ago when I, when I shared the diagnosis and the story of what it means to live with bipolar disorder on my podcast. And I feel like it has played a big part in the art and both film and television and and books and now the podcast. And I don't know how to explain it other than it felt like this very dark secret that was actually fueling a lot of the work that I was doing. I think it, um, the depression sort of fuels my compassion and empathy, which shows up in the work a lot. Sometimes the mania drives the productivity. And so... There was something about the sharing of that. Like once I was super transparent and honest with myself in the world about that, that the, the, the work, um, it sort of clicked for me. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question. It doesn't but, naturally. Of course it raises more. <laughs> uh, so it, I guess two questions, you know, um, one, when it comes to bipolar disorder, what's the difference between sort of the reality versus the perception that we experience through media, through books we read? Uh, and I can relate to that having gone through periods of depression in my life. I mean, I remember when I just crashed and burned after a breakup in 2014 
Uh, doctors like you've had long term low grade clinical depression that went undiagnosed. And she's like, and you just went from a series of extreme highs, which was like the year that, you know, like my life looked like it was taking off to, you know, a sudden series of extreme lows. So everything just went to shit. Uh, and it just didn't get better for six months, like to the point where I almost ran, ran my business into the ground. But I also came out of the other side of that realizing that, okay, you know, people who have these issues are not crazy. Um, and that this is very real. Well, I, so I did a podcast episode called Kimmy is not Carrie from Homeland. Um, and I don't know if you watched Homeland, but, um, the, you know, I know this episode will most likely air later, but right now Elon Musk and Yay, formerly known as Kanye West, are both in the news. And there is a lot of discussion about both of them being manic depressive, living with bipolar disorder. So that is showing up in really damaging, <laughs> um, deeply damaging, negative ways. Um, and so I think there's it's it's interesting to observe when you have a shared diagnosis, right? And you see um, the negative implosion and the ramifications to almost feel like, no, 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 but that's not me. I don't want to share a label, right? I don't want people to think that that is who I'm going to be because we share a diagnosis and we share a label. Um, so I think the portrayals are often public figures, they're often very exaggerated, not exaggerated because they are what they are. Um, but for other people living quietly with the illness, it's yet another reason you don't want to raise your hands and say, oh, me too, I'm also living with this because the perception is quickly going to go to, is she batshit crazy? Like, is she about to <laughs> implode? Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I certainly live, um, on an emotional roller coaster at times, like we all do. Um, but I also live a, a meaningful life that I like most of the time. Um, but that said, and, and going back to privilege, I have access to, um, great psychiatrists. I've been on medication. I have um, access to great talk therapy. I have access to um, all sorts of modalities for self-care, like taking, you know, workout classes or being able to do acupuncture. So I have a lot of things in my favor for living with this illness. Mm -hmm. How does it affect um, relationships with loved ones? Well, I think it... it requires a certain amount of self-awareness for the person living with bipolar disorder because you're, you know, sometimes your behavior isn't congruent with your, the person you want to be, right? Um, and so I think for relationships, it requires, um, a lot of patience. <laughs> um, so, and at times, I think it's exhausting to be married with, you know, or to be in a relationship because when somebody else is on a roller coaster 
and you're surrounded by their energy, you're you're on it too, right? So, um, yeah, I, I I think to be responsible in relationship and and by the way, working relationships, like I'm actually working on a on an article right now on being self-aware about the impact on others because when you're emailing people like, you know, all night long, we should do this and this is an idea. It may be a fabulous fucking idea, but you don't need to email the person, you know, four times in the middle of the night and they wake up in their inbox. So like even self-awareness on that level. So yeah, I think it has an impact in all of your relationships. Now I want to balance that out to say, that this is episodes. So there are long stretches, again, with self-care, with medication and with therapy, where I feel very balanced, um, pretty balanced in my body and in my relationships. But when there are episodes, there's an impact on all your relationships. Mm. Wow. Well, wow. um, I feel like you and I could sit here and just talk for three or four hours because there's so many rabbit holes that we could explore and places we could go with this. But uh, in the interest of time, I want to finish with one last question, which I'm sure you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think figuring out what lights you up and stepping into that with your truest self. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? You can find me uh, at KimmyCulp.com. So it's K-I-M-I-C-U-L-P.com. And my podcast, which is All the Wiser Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.